Welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and abilities of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Chris Waddell, a 13-time Paralympic champion, an anchor on NBCSN's coverage of both the Summer and Winter Paralympic Games, an author, a public speaker, a filmmaker, and a disabilities rights advocate. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. It's great that you're here. So I was excited when I was watching the Summer Paralympic Games this year that there was finally the uh, full equivalence of the kind of coverage I've been seeing for decades around the Olympics. And I know you are both and were a Paralympic champion and you covered the uh, Summer Paralympic Games. So I wonder if you could talk about what's happened since the time you were an athlete and now where you're a commentator and the transformation that seems to be happening finally. Well, so it was, it was 2,800 plus hours of coverage on the NBC platforms. I mean, which is, which is really amazing. You're getting right now, you're getting some athletes who, who are getting to be household names. That wasn't really the case. My first games was in 92 in Alberville and I signed a fair number of autographs. Most of them were in crayon because I think we had like a couple of first grade classes who came to watch us and, yeah. and it's changed. We didn't have an opening ceremonies there. We didn't have an opening ceremonies in a stadium. And obviously with COVID this year, it was not the same as it would have been with fans in the audience, but it is a similar, very similar platform to, to the Paralympics on a live format. I mean, I remember, you know, one of the coolest things like back in 2012, looking at people in London who were trying to get tickets to the Paralympics and they would wake up in the middle of the night to get on a lottery and hopefully get tickets to the Paralympics. It has continued to change and grow and evolve and people are getting a chance to see it. And I think what happens is my hope is that one, they're entertained, that it's great sport and it's great entertainment, but two, that it, it starts changing the way that they see somebody with a disability, that, that that person on the street is not some ostracized outcast of society, but instead is somebody to go, hey, what do you do? You know, and I think that hopefully it starts that conversation. Yeah, so that was one of the things I noticed that the uh, announcer would be as excited as the regular sports announcer. So when somebody won a race, he was going, ah, she won, ah. and then you would come in and you would do the analysis uh, or even before the race would start, you know, breaking down the different athletes as athletes. And, uh, and that was a huge shift. I remember the London Paralympic games uh, that had, they had Coldplay and Rihanna and Stephen Hawking was there. It was like a big event in London. And in America, all they were doing was a package, an hour package or something. All of that excitement was lost in this country. So what, what happened that shifted this so dramatically in a relatively short period of time uh, in terms of NBC's involvement? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned 2012 in London because they showed the world that the television entertainment could be viable. And they yeah. put a big investment into it. Channel 4 had taken over from the BBC and they put four years of programming into the, into the time leading up to the games. 
So yeah. people were already prepared for the Paralympics. They knew who the athletes were. And not only did they know who the athletes were, the athletes were their athletes. There, yeah. There's a hometown mentality, right? That, that we root for our team. We root for our people. And the athletes, the British athletes became their, their athletes. And that was really cool. It was a shift. It demonstrated, I think in the US at the time, we had three or four hours of coverage, but that changed it. That changed, that changed the whole, the whole playing field for, for us in the U S for the, for the world, really, that, that people saw the Paralympics as a viable product, a viable television product. We're also in an exciting period of time as we look at approaching LA in 2028. And I also have to hope that, that we're going to get Salt Lake city following soon after LA 28, whether, whether in 2030 or 2034. And it, it changes it when, when you, when it's a host country, the, uh, the, the amount of attention, the amount of, of coverage that goes into the games and the buildup of the games and the buildup of the athletes changes and when it's a home games. And so, so I'm hoping that having LA 2028 and hopefully Hopefully Salt Lake soon on the heels afterwards means that we in the U.S. are going to invest a lot in the Paralympic athletes, the Paralympians, and in coverage of the games. The profiles of the Paralympic athletes were different than the normal media coverage of people with disabilities, which it wasn't that uh, inspirational angle that they like to play up so much in uh, regular media, but it was much more dimensional, that it was really the story of that person, some of their struggle. But after you left the profile, you felt, well, it's like what they do with Tom Brady or LeBron James. You know, they do these little things and you get to know them and their charity work or you get to know them with other aspects of their life. And I thought that was a, also a significant change in coverage. And it talked to me how that evolved with your participation. My hope in working as an analyst for the games is to make it as accessible to the audience as possible. So I want the audience to be able to understand what's happening on the field of play, but I also want them to understand and have a rooting interest for the particular athlete that is competing, which means that you're talking about a three-dimensional figure. I mean, we are, none of us are perfect figures. We have, we have our great attributes, we have our flaws. And to me, I think that the Paralympics really will arrive when, when you can say, well, I'm, I'm rooting for this person because of this. And, and this is acceptable, Larry, that I'm rooting against that person. This guy's too cocky. I don't think I, don't think I wanna root for him. Right. And you know what? That's totally acceptable. That's human as opposed to this is the Paralympics and we need to root for everybody because these are people who've had to endure this kind of struggle. And it's like, no, this is, these are people and there, there will be people that you will relate to and there'll be people that you don't relate to. And it's totally fine both ways, but we do have to round that out. And yeah, you have to know that person well enough to be able to, to decide whether you want to root for them. So it's okay to boo somebody who's a Paralympic athlete that you don't like because he could beat your guy or girl or right i mean i you you would do that in 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 other sports right 
Right. You know, yes. there's sport and it's okay. It's okay to be against the, t- I mean, granted, you know, you're, you're coming from Boston right now. I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm a Red Sox fan and, and I'm a fan of anybody playing the Yankees. Right. You know, this is, this is the way it goes. They hate them. They always hate them. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, that's part of being a fan. Tell us a little bit about how you became a Paralympic champion. I know you were involved with athletics before there was an accident, I believe, and how you viewed the world before the accident and how you viewed it afterwards and what it did to your trajectory as an athlete. So sports to me were were something I just gravitated toward as a kid. It was just something that I always loved. My biggest heroes were were athletes. They were the people, they were the people that I wanted to be. And in a lot of ways, they were the people that I wanted to be because they achieved the impossible. This was really a dream come true. As a spectator, it was a dream come true, right? Like watching somebody do something that you never thought was possible. It's like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be like those people, whether it was, I mean, even going way back, like I read lots of biographies about like, you know, Jim Thorpe or like Dr. J or Ted Williams or these kinds of people. Like these were, these were some of my heroes. Some of my first Olympic memories were of Nadia Comaneci's 10, perfect 10 in in Montreal in 1976. And that same year, right? Because this is when the games were both winter and summer in the same year of Franz Klammer's run in Innsbruck in, in 1976 in that yellow, yellow downhill suit and, and just being crazy and, and looking like he was on the razor's edge the whole time. Like these were, these were my people. And so I grew, I grew up, I started ski racing when I was six years old. I played baseball. I played, I played soccer. I played just about every other sport, but those were kind of the organized sports that I played. And, and I was, ski racing in college. I was ski racing at a place called Middlebury College in Vermont. And it was my first day of Christmas vacation. I went home. My brother and I went to the mountain where we'd grown up, a place called, called Berkshire East Ski Area out off of Route 2 in Charlemont, Massachusetts. So about two hours west of Boston, not quite in the Berkshires, but on the way to the Berkshires. And, uh, you know, in the middle of a turn, my ski popped off, popped off prematurely, I fell in the middle of the trail, didn't hit anything but the ground, but I broke two vertebrae and damaged the spinal cord. So that changed my life. But in a lot of ways, it gave me a voice that I might not have had otherwise, a voice and a perspective, a perspective in that I joined, I joined a group that I didn't want to join. I had no idea, you know, you're not enticed by like parking spaces and that are closer to the supermarket <laughs> or something like that. Right. Yeah, I, that's true. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't thinking, oh, okay. Yeah. I want to get that parking space. It's closer to the supermarket. I'll, oh, I'll go break my back to do true. that. No, yeah. it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. But I also became an advocate for that group. And I became an advocate because I became an advocate for myself. Most of my friends, they didn't know anybody in a wheelchair. So I had to start teaching them. You know, do you need somebody to hold the door for you? Do you need to push up this hill? Do you need this? Do you need that? And I, you know, at that point, I didn't really know what I needed, but, but that's where it started. And then as an athlete, you start educating as well. And it became an interesting, interesting thing. I think that, that in some ways, I, I felt like I wanted people to see us for the first time. That, that if I could shock them enough with a performance, you know, going 70 miles an hour on one ski, that not only would they see me differently, but they might, they might have to take a step back the next time that they saw somebody in a wheelchair. And 
I felt like it gave me a bit more of a voice and gave me a, a bit more of a purpose. So when did you think about becoming a Paralympic athlete? So you were 19? Had the I, was, I was 20 years old uh, when I had my accident. The year before my accident, I was actually at a ski race up at Burke Mountain and Diana Golden was there. Diana Golden had lost her leg to cancer when she was a kid. She, I want to say she was 10. She might've been younger than that, but somewhere around that area. And, and she lost her leg to cancer and, and she showed up at the ski race and it was all able-bodied people. And this one woman with one leg and, and in a lot of ways, she was the best athlete that I've ever seen in that we as athletes, we as human beings have our excuses and sometimes we have our excuses before we even start right because if you're if you're slow as a ski racer they announce your time to everybody and there's nobody to blame it's just you and and you feel like everybody's staring at you and she was like look i'm gonna fall down but i'm gonna get back up and and my wife hates this analogy but i feel like she was like jason from friday the 13th of athletes you know jason he was always he was always chasing you, right? And you thought you'd killed him. You thought you were free. And then he came back in the next scene. And that's kind of the way she was. She was like, she was like, I might fall down, but I'm going to keep going and keep going. And, and in that respect, it was the athlete that I would hope to be, that, that I wish that I had the courage to be that kind of athlete, to not hide behind my insecurity. And, and so I saw her, and in a lot of ways, before I had an accident, I'd gained, I'd gained a hero or I'd gained a mentor. And, and so when I had my accident and when I knew that I was not going to walk again, I thought I want to do for mono skiing, what Diana did for what we call three tracking. So three tracking means one ski, two outriggers. And so she's an above the knee amputee. So that's what we call a three tracker. And I wanted to do for mono skiing, what she did for three tracking. And Thought, okay, I mean, not only am I going to go to the Paralympics, but it's not, it's not that intermediate step. It's not just, I mean, there are intermediate steps along the way, but it's not just, I want to make the U.S. team. It's like, I want to be the best in the world, but not only do I want to be the best in the world, I want to do things that nobody thought were possible. I want to, in a lot of ways, I want to be the person that my heroes had been for me. So how, how did you get on that road to the Paralympics? What was the first step and which Paralympic Games did you first attend and did you win medals the first time around? I'm hoping. <laughs> so I was super lucky. I was super lucky right from the beginning in that I had a tremendous amount of support. I always had friends and family in my hospital room. When I went back to college, I went back in February and just kind of, you know, I, I, I made it through that first semester back, which was, everything was a transition. Just, I was exhausted by eight o'clock at night. I was going to bed so early because it just, everything getting around was so hard. My coach, the following, the, the next fall, called me into his office. He'd been out at Mount Hood and he saw the, the adaptive ski team skiing out there. And he saw these guys in monoskis and, and actually one of his, one of the coaches there had been one of his athletes prior and, and so he knew her well. He saw, he saw these athletes skiing. I came into his office. He said, hey, I saw these guys. They're skiing in a monoski. We'd like to have you as part of a team. We'd, we'd like to get you your first monoski. You know, I'd like to get you a monoski so you can do this. And so the friends of Middlebury Skiing actually bought my first monoski for me, which is about, I don't know, $2,500 or something like that. And my coach got a, 
get a friend of his to to give me some some skis so it's so a regular skis so i got some skis he gave me some goggles as well i was fully outfitted and stayed a part of the team even though i really couldn't make a turn i could barely i could barely get down the hill but i stayed part of the team and went with them to training every day and got a little bit better a little bit better and started started doing some races i actually did my first race probably about two weeks after i started skiing wow. in a mono ski which was absolutely crazy but what was cool is that that day i carried myself like a ski racer i had no right to carry myself like a ski racer because i could barely get down the hill but there's a way that you carry yourself as you inspect the course as you prepare to race. And I synced right back into that just because it was something that I had done so many times prior. And, and I actually won my class that day in my very first race. It was a regional race, but I skied fast enough to qualify for the national championships and made it to nationals that year. I assumed, you know, this, I had, I had been ski racing for 15 years. I assumed that they would recognize this tremendous potential and name me to the team right at the beginning. They did not do that. They did not do that at nationals. Uh -huh. They did not. It took them. It took them a whole year after I went to my first nationals to to name me to the team, which I thought was a long time. I thought they should have named me much earlier than that. But but they they did exactly what they were supposed to do. But but I was I was impatient and I was impatient because. Because one, I needed to get named to the team. And two, I wanted to become the fastest monoskier in the world. And so I went to my first games was 92 in Alberville. I graduated from Middlebury on skis. I graduated in the end of January, cap and gown procession on skis. I led the cap and gown procession and then got on an airplane the next day and flew to Colorado. And that was it. I was a full-time athlete starting that that very next day and then got named to the team to Alberville and won two silver medals in Alberville. I was second in the slalom and I was second in the giant slalom. It was a little bit painful in the giant slalom because I had won the first run by I think two tenths of a second and the the guy who ended up winning won the second run by three tenths of a second I think. So he ended up beating me overall by one tenth of a second which is really not that much but really doesn't matter how much you win by it ends up being one step on the podium down to the next step of the podium. And that's where I was down one step. But still a uh, very significant accomplishments. How did all of this make you feel in terms of yourself and your disability and what you wanted to do next? It was a struggle athletically. It, it, I mean, it's a full-time job in a lot of ways. I think that one of the cool things about the Paralympics is that as an athlete, you have a sense of ownership of, of the sport in general and of the Paralympics as well, an ownership and a responsibility that if people are going to watch, you have to be a part of that process of getting people to watch you in the games. And, and it was a bit frustrating. I mean, it was a bit frustrating in that racing in Alberville, it was pretty much friends and family. I mean, I did mention we had a couple of those first grade classes that came up from the Valley or whatever and, and watched us, but, but really it was, it was friends and family. And that's, that was the hard part. When I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro later on, I thought we have to do a documentary film on this because if you don't tell the story, 
it didn't happen. And, and early on in my Paralympic career, I felt like we weren't able to tell the story. And so the question is, did it happen? I could come back from, from France. I could win two silver medals and yeah, Hey, what are you, what are you up to these days? And it's like, well, I just, I was the second best guy in the world at what I do. I'm like, really? Oh, that must be great for you. But people aren't seeing it on television the same way that they see or then that they saw it on the Olympics. And so, so that was part of the challenge was getting to the point where people actually saw it, where they, where they knew where they were fluent in what we were doing and, and understood the differentiation between one athlete and another. So when was the next Paralympic Games? So the, so the first games was, was actually 92 and then, and then that's when they started staggering it. So it was only two years from 92 in Lil in Alberville to 94 in Lillehammer. So the next games were, were 94. And for me, it was great that the next games were, were that soon because this was my big growth period. 1993 was probably my greatest year as a monoskier, as a Paralympian, I went from, from winning my class in the U.S. to beating the fastest monoskiers in the world. And there are three different classes of monoskiers. And I was in the most disabled of those three classes. So someone, someone at one point, Larry, lovingly, I believe, referred to my class as pumpkins sitting on a fence in the wind for our propensity to topple over. We did not have much sitting balance. I don't have a lot of core muscle or core stability. And some of the guys in the other classes, there were double amputees who were who had all their muscles all the way down to their amputation. You know, it might be down to their knees. There were single amputees who skied in mono skis. There were guys who walked up. There was one guy who at one point I was going through deep snow in my wheelchair who walked up behind me and asked me if he could help me, if he could give me a push. And this was a guy who was skiing in a monoski. And my goal had been to be the fastest monoskier in the world. And, and I actually, I beat that guy. I beat everybody in the downhill in Lillehammer, the fastest of the events. I beat everybody in the world. And to me, that meant that it was about skiing. It was about skiing ability as opposed to the disability. It was about finding a way to adapt to whatever we had and to achieve it in the best possible way. And, and I felt like I was successful in that. And, and I felt like that was probably, you know, in sport, that was probably my greatest victory was, was proving that I could be the fastest in the world. Yeah, it's one of the no limits points. The attempt to do certain things elicits a lot of creativity and abilities from the person who's trying to do whatever they're trying to do. So uh, when did you attempt Mount Kilimanjaro? What year was that? So I competed in the Paralympics. I competed in seven Paralympics, four winter games, three summer games. My final games was in Athens in 2004. So I kind of felt like in my own little mind, Larry, I felt like, uh, like Mark Twain with Haley's Comet, right? He said he, he came in with it and he'd be damned if he didn't go out with it. And right, so yeah. I kind of wanted to close that loop. The, the Paralympics didn't begin in Athens, but the whole idea of Olympics and Paralympics, the modern Olympics uh, beginning in Athens. And so, so I felt like I wanted to finish in Athens and I finished in Athens. Retiring was the most challenging thing that I'd ever done, retiring from competitive sport because my identity was different as an athlete than it was as someone in a wheelchair. 
there was there were there were a lot of opportunities for to create a bond through sport through trying to do the same thing through the equipment and so so it was actually when i was in the hospital the doctor didn't want to let me out of the hospital because he felt like i hadn't been depressed and that i was a ticking time bomb but after i'd proven i could be the best in the world at what i did then i actually became depressed that was the that was the challenge and it was hard leaving sport and i was looking for something else looking to be able to tell that story and and i was i had an off-road hand cycle i went up and i climbed a trail you know, climbed a hill and a trail out by my house. And on the way down, I had this thought, it, it almost literally like tapped me on the shoulder. I have no idea where this thought came from. It didn't seem like it came from my mind. And it said, you need to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I thought about it and thought, we're all climbing a mountain, right? I mean, no matter who we are, we're struggling up our own mountain. And Kilimanjaro, 19,340 foot Mount Kilimanjaro, tallest mountain in Africa, is a mountain that people can recognize and and a, a context that people can understand hey this is a guy who's trying to climb a mountain and then they go, oh this is a guy who's trying to climb a mountain in a four-wheeled hand cycle pedaling with his hands trying to get to this top of this mountain that at that altitude is 48 percent of the oxygen at sea level so uh so for me that's when kilimanjaro came out it was a way to continue to tell that story and hopefully tell it in a context that people would see themselves in me when I was climbing that mountain. They would see my struggle as similar to their struggle. So how did you actually do it? You know, Larry, I, I often say that the two weeks on the mountain were the easiest two weeks that I had in the two years leading up to it. Right. Because all I had to do was pedal. I mean, I had, I'll describe the vehicle first. It's a four-wheeled vehicle. It sort of looks like a Mars Rover married to arm pedal power. It yeah. did not have suspension, but each wheel could articulate as much as 14 inches. So you get this rock crawler kind of thing where, and, and it was arm pedal power. So it was regular transmission that you'd have on a bike. I mean, similar transmission. We actually had two chains. So we were taking that gear and we were actually, I think, having that gear. So cutting it in half. I think my lowest gear was something like one, one, uh, one pedal stroke was like, couple of inches of forward movement so it was a really easy gear but getting there yeah the idea of hey this sounds like a good idea i have to create a team you know creating a team raising the money to get there getting to africa is not a cheap excursion by any means developing the equipment we we piggybacked on the technology of a guy named mike oxberger who developed what he called the one-off hand cycle, which is what I had used to climb that original trail, which was a three-wheeled vehicle. He also built a four-wheeled prototype. We borrowed that four-wheeled prototype. And then we built our own when it was a little bit narrower. We moved the wheels a little bit further forward. So we increased traction, which was, you know, some of the people told us, well, that's not going to work at, at a higher, at, at a on a steeper pitch, you're going to end up flipping over. It ended up working out. It worked out well. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a matter of creating that team. It was a matter of raising that money. It was a matter of, of getting the film crew together and figuring out how we could shoot it. And luckily I had I had some friends who were who were actors, some friends who worked in film. And you know, we were I, I was able to get there. I was really lucky in a lot of ways. My guide, a guy named Dave Penny, a friend had introduced me to him 
And he was a guy who had been a, uh, he had been a bike mechanic during the beginning of the mountain bike craze. He was in, in Colorado or in uh, Crested Butte, master bike mechanic and mountain biking really came out of, Hey, do you think we can put this wheel on that frame? And what do you think will happen? And so he was a guy who'd gone through that kind of stuff and was super helpful in, in creating it. My director, Amanda Stoddard, uh, was was somebody who who related to the story. I mean, both in terms of in terms of the story she wanted to tell about me, but but she was also telling her own story, right? I mean, this is this is as a director, that's what you end up doing, and so it was really cool to see how this how this group came together. But yeah, it was. That was the hard work. Manage. I, I'd always been a lone wolf, Larry. I'd I'd gone out and and I was an individual sport athlete, and I I, I could perform. You know, I, I was part of a team, but at the same time, when I went through the starting gate, it was all me. And this was a little bit different. And and being in charge and and trying to trying to help direct people was was a real was a real challenge. I'm still growing in that level in that in that uh, arena. One of the things that's a barrier for people with disabilities is able-bodied people don't see the value of people with disabilities or they feel they be, should be doing this, you know, they have a slot for it rather than saying, well, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, beside which, look at all the organizational leadership abilities he has. Let's bring him in here. And I think that's what's very important about what you did. When you got up there, how did you feel? I actually want to piggyback on your previous comment because a lot of people ask me, how did you train to climb Kilimanjaro? I said, well, everything that had ever gone wrong in my life. Because when you're climbing a mountain, you don't know what's going to go wrong, but you know that things have gone wrong in your life. And you know that you've found a way to solve that problem. To your point about, about employment, problem solving, the higher you get, in any business, the more you're required to be the problem solver. You think, oh, you're at the top, this is easy. You just tell people what to do. And no, not really. You're the one who puts out the fires. You're the one who, who finds a way to get beyond whatever the problems are. And so in that respect, it really, everything that had gone wrong in my life prepared me for the mountain, but everything that had gone wrong in my life, all the challenges and trying to find a solution, are the things that, that prepare me for employment as well, prepare other people with disabilities for employment. Because when things go wrong, if you can find a creative solution, that, that really helps. That really helps push you forward. So, so uh, what it felt like at the top, part of it was a relief. Part of it was a relief that we made it. I mean, it was, it was euphoria and relief at the same time, euphoria that we made it and relief that we made it because I had told a whole bunch of people and there's a bit of the transparency was important. Transparency is important because one, we need, a, we need fans, but two, it needed to be this honest effort. It needed to be obvious, the struggle, because we're all struggling. Like everybody's struggling. And if you can relate to that struggle and if you can watch that struggle, then you can feel like, hey, this has something to do with me. And I told them and and I wanted to make it to the top. But as I told people to watch, then there's the worry about, hey, I told you to watch. And it might be the first day that I, you know, I have something go massively wrong. 
and and I'm not going to make it. I, I get too sick and I have to go down and 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 I'm not going to make it to the next day. So making it to the top, it was like, OK, we've worked. And so I've made it to the top and and you're, you know, 19,340 feet. We were above the clouds. You're looking down on the clouds. And it was uh, but it was also it was the communal part where there's the there's the individual thing but the best part about climbing was we had a team of of nine people uh, including the film crew and being able to share that moment with them they were they were there they were documenting it one of the the chair of my board was there our doctor who had ski raced with me in college was there just being able to share this moment with this team who they were there for me they were there to help out as best they could but to know that I didn't make it to the top on my own that I was really, I really was this part of this team. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, a big emphasis in business now, uh, particularly in uh, areas like uh, software development, having team efforts are really important. When you, uh, I know you speak in front of schools uh, to children and also in corporations, what lessons do you bring to them from your life and what you've experienced kids or people in business? Our school program is called Name Tags, and it's about the labels, which are often the limitations that we put on ourselves and others. And it's it's a resilience-based program. Our motto is, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you, which is intentionally universal. Things are going to go wrong for all of us, and it doesn't matter what goes wrong, it's what we do with what goes wrong. The question that I often get afterwards that gets to the heart of that is, if you could go back and you could change that day, would you? Would you not have that accident? Would you still be walking around? Would you still be able to reach the top shelf, you know, kind of thing? And my answer, honestly, is that I wouldn't. That I could speculate, right? I could speculate as to what might have happened in my life, where I might be now. Would it be different? I don't know. But I wouldn't want to change the person that I've become and the experiences that I've had for some sort of speculation about who or what I might be now. Some of the other things that, that come out of it are one that nobody climbs a mountain alone. I mean, not to, not to give away the Kilimanjaro because uh, people should go and watch One Revolution, O-N-E Revolution on Amazon Prime. It's on Amazon Prime, so go watch the movie. But, but they did have to carry me over a point None of us really are are on our own. We are part of that team. But I think one of the biggest things for me was that gift that I received is that they carried me for like 100 feet. Carried me for 100 feet and that 100 feet was a great gift because it allowed me to separate myself from the obligation of being a superhero, of being able to do whatever I could do. And, and it allowed me to be human, allowed me to to struggle, allowed me to struggle publicly. And that, that public struggle is the most empowering thing for a group. I mean, that's, it brings people together. People want to join that struggle. They want to help, help achieve it. And, and so those are probably the biggest things that come out of the story of the client. I think that's such an important point uh, because since the tragic murder of George Floyd, there's definitely been a huge effort in the corporate world to deal with diversity. And unfortunately, uh, although progress has been made for other groups, people with disabilities in some ways are now lagging even farther behind. And ironically, African-Americans 
with a disability, Native Americans with a disability, are not visible in terms of the surge around commercials that I'm watching. And it suddenly struck me that in some ways the gap is growing larger, not smaller. And it's vitally important for people who are thinking about work or in positions to hire people with disabilities, that they understand the lessons that you've been just articulating, that we're all in this together, that we all struggle, we all have this commonality, and that when we work together with uh, people with disabilities, some miraculous things can happen. Speaking of miraculous things, where are you heading in your career? Well, I mean, obviously COVID has been a challenge in a lot of ways. Well, I've done two live school presentations in the last two years now. Certainly looking to get back to that. Mental health has been a huge issue for schools, for people in general, and trying to share this this story that, that yeah, we are in it all together. And oftentimes we think that the thing that, that could make us separate, we think it makes us unique. You know, that if anybody knew my secret, that I'd be on the outside looking in. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily make you unique. That makes you human. But when we're allowed to to sort of stick in our own head, we are, you know, it, we, we get lost. We get right. lost. That, that can be a really scary and detrimental place to be. So trying to continue to, to find ways to, to reach students with that message, with that resilient message, and that, that we aren't in it all, alone. We are, we are part of that team. You know, storytelling is at the, at the heart of, of what I do, whether that's in, in speaking to kids, whether it's speaking to corporations. I have a television show that I'm working on called Chris Waddell Living It, where an expert with a disability teaches an adventure to an able-bodied person. So we are flipping the paradigm of what disability means because you're not, you're not usually thinking that someone with a disability would be the expert in this situation. And so that to me is a cool situation to be in because, because it's, you know, I think one of the greatest things that we can have as human beings is that we can allow ourselves to be surprised by somebody. If we think, oh, okay, this person might surprise me. And oftentimes that person will surprise you. And, you know, that's, that's a great gift that we can give to ourselves if, if we're allowed to do that. So, uh, so yeah, so working on the television show, I have a couple of podcasts that I'm working on, bringing a bunch of um, one of them on the one on the name tags chat podcast, which we do live on Facebook, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain time. On Wednesdays, we uh, bring in a lot of a lot of Paralympic athletes. Uh, it it really is a great way to to get to know some people that you might not get a chance to know. You were talking about the invisibility, and I feel like from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare at someone who looks different, and we we don't get a chance to stare. We don't get a chance to ask questions. We don't get a chance to know somebody who seemingly is different from us, and so. So, you know, this is an opportunity to get to know somebody that you might not get a chance to know. And you go, wow, I, like that totally surprised me. I, I, and, and you probably end up leaving going, you know, I would have thought, you know, that's too bad what happened to that person. And now I'm leaving thinking, I wish I could be like that person. I wish I could, I might need to, to incorporate a bunch of what that person is doing. So doing that one, we have another one called Chris Waddell Living It, which is a sister to the TV show. Uh, experts in the experience of being human, athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, people who have taken the risk 
to follow the dreams that most people are unwilling to follow. And those are the people I want to learn from. Those are the people that go, wow, how did you do it? You know, what did you do? And then you go, how did you do it? Because if you ask, how did you do it? Then, then you can learn something, right? Yeah, that's definitely what I've learned in this podcast with you. I'm, we've known each other five or six years, but I, I've learned new things about you. And, uh, you know, that's what I hope people will get out of it. Uh, the same, I share with you the same perception that it's great to be surprised. It's great to encounter something and look at it anew. And it's great to try to work with somebody and try to figure out new arrangements, new ways to innovate, to make the workplace or life itself exciting and challenging and uh, to appreciate each other. So I, I thank you for your time and everything you've done. And I look forward to even more great things from you and the Paralympic Games and regular sports commentary. I hope it's coming up around the corner. So thanks, Chris. Fingers for crossed. Thank okay. you, Larry. Keep up the great work as well. Okay. Take care.